Welcome to the third series of Haptic and Hughes' Tales of Textiles. I'm Jo Andrews, a hand weaver interested in how all kinds of textiles speak to us and the impact they have on our lives. This series is called The Chatter of Cloth, and each episode begins with a single cloth and then unravels its story. If you look at a piece of fabric, it tells you a great deal about itself. How it feels, what it's made of, what colour it is, what pattern it has. And you can probably make a guess at what it might be used for. That's the surface story. And I hope these tales of textiles tell that. But they also try to tell another story, the understory. Where does this cloth come from? Who made it? Or where was this pattern or technique developed? And what does it mean to different people around the world? And most of all, to the person who owns it or loves it. The cloth that starts this episode is a fragment, embroidered in red and green silk. One that tells a tale of flight to safety from great danger and is the starting point for an exploration of one of the most beautiful and interesting collections of handmade textiles in the world today. The piece we begin with is called a bag, a word that means orchard in Hindi. It comes from the Punjab, which was split in two in 1947 at the time of the traumatic partition between India and Pakistan. Hand-stitching bags is part of the tradition of Punjabi grandmothers, intricately embroidering in silk to cover completely a ground cloth. These pieces shimmer and glow with the depth of colour, and they were designed to be passed to their granddaughters to wear on their wedding day. The piece my aunt gave me, it's a tiny fragment. And within that fragment, there are three fragments that were joined. So uh, I remember it's about 35 years ago. She just found out that I was buying bags and antique Indian textiles. And she'd never mentioned anything like that to me before. So she produced this piece and started telling me a story of the petition which obviously I knew about, and also listening to my mum and so forth, how traumatic the whole thing was for the whole family. So while they were leaving, she had to wrap some gold. So she found these three strips of this bag that she had, and she wrapped the gold in it and hid them, it in her person. And they didn't bring in any other textiles, basically. They had to you know, travel in really simple clothes so that for the fear of being looted, because in 47, the partition was a huge turmoil for both countries. Millions were displaced, millions were killed. So that tale was very poignant to me. And also the fact that she kept that piece and she hadn't even told her children about it. They didn't know about it. My mum didn't know about it. And when I told them this story, they were not really that interested in it either. So... They all talked about the pieces of jewellery they brought together, which had to be sold, how terrible that was, because jewellery is something worth value. 
they could equate to that. So it was quite touching that she gave that to me. That's Karun Taka. His story made me wonder, if I face that dreadful circumstance, the need to leave my home now, taking only what I could carry easily, what textile would I choose? And what memories would that cloth hold for me in future? This happened to Karun's family, not once, but twice. After partition, his parents left India and settled in Kenya rebuilding the family's fortune with property. And then once again they had to flee in the 1970s, when the East African nations expelled their Asian communities. This double experience of loss was traumatic. Yeah, I mean, if you look around us, what migration does to people, the daily stories we're reading now, people are arriving with almost nothing, with a small bundle of belongings. Um, so you lose a lot, and in particular with the petition with Pakistan, my uh, parents' family, mum's family, they had everything in property, so that's something you couldn't lift and move. Um, and then again, moving to UK, there's the whole of your childhood leave, you'd leave behind. This time the family came to Britain, but that was far from easy either. Uh, we came in sort of mid-70s because it was quite a horrific time for us. Racism was rife. Um, school life was quite terrible for me and my young brother. Basically, the only memories you have are how you're going to survive being abused that day or running away at the end of the school so you're not picked up and beaten. Uh, and then, you know, taking it further, starting my first job, I was attacked by some skinheads wearing um, Union Jack t-shirt and one had a swastika. So those things can have quite horrific memories. But obviously, as I've lived here for so long, decades now, and my only home is Britain now. Um, so those things evolve, you know, your memories fade and you get support and love and you move away from those and they can become quite positive. By calling this positive, what Karun means is not that the attack was positive, it was brutal and left him significantly injured. But the love and kindness he received in the wake of the attack has left good memories. And this is something that marks out Karun. He doesn't ignore hardship, but he believes in focusing on the positive. This is important because out of the ashes of his family's experience of loss, Karun has built up over many years an astonishing collection of textiles. He's dedicated his life to this, and he has thousands of handmade pieces from Asia, Africa and Europe. He lives with his collection in an old 18th century house in the West Country of England. Opening the door to each room in this home with its bare floorboards is like stepping into a new museum. Museums that together form a united nations of cloth. Imagine the whispers along the corridors at night as Uzbek Suzanis and the Ottoman Chapans swap stories of hard winters with the overstitched and patched Japanese farmers' coats as the hand-dyed and woven Tibetan aprons 
gossip with the Bengali canther cloth, and all the fragments of the Fante people's glorious Asafo flags chatter to each other about festivals long past. Their common language speaks of fold and drape, wear and tear, of make-do and mend. They form a library of the intelligence of our hands and the determination of human hearts to snatch beauty from hardship, to create meaning from what we have, and most of all to protect, clothe and love our families and communities. Karun is not a collector because of a great desire to acquire and own, but instead because he's passionate to educate people and to help them understand what textiles mean to us and our societies. I really don't want to be sitting in a circle of elderly collectors, mainly white collectors, men, talking about how wonderful my eye is and then folding your objects away and putting it away until you die and then it comes up for auction. That is not my reason for buying. That is not my reason for dedicating my whole life to these objects. I really want to inspire young people. So when I go to SOAS, I see young people looking around my shows and writing most wonderful comments after the African Textiles show that they didn't realize there was this amazing abstract pieces being woven in Africa you had Annie Alba's show at Tate Modern and then people saw the show of African textiles which were done century or decades before that work we, and uh, nobody really wanted to cover the Africa show but that's just the way a lot of African textiles and arts are covered in the West. So I want to inspire that young person to say I want to study it, I want to look at that design or African people who visited that saying it's part, very much part of their history, part of their culture, and they weren't aware of it. They never confronted it. So that is a different form of collecting that I'm trying to promote. Karun lends and gives, advises and writes, publishes and photographs, day in, day out. If you don't know his name now, you will soon. Many of the world's museums, small and large, are beating a path to his door to ask him to lend his textiles for their shows. And thanks to his work, we're starting to see a number of new and different textile exhibitions. Ones that are not purely about the lives of elites, like most museum shows, but ones where domestic and handmade cloths made by ordinary working people living tough lives are given their proper place as a critical part of human endeavour. There is the free exhibition of Indian bags and fulkaris at the Brunei Gallery just off Russell Square in London. The Washington Textile Museum show on Indian textiles opening in a few months. The V&A's much-anticipated show on African fashion next year. All of these have different parts of Karun's collection at their heart. There's also the new Karun Taka Fund at the V&A in London, which gives grants and scholarships to study Asian and African textiles and dress. I wanted to know how Karun started to make this extraordinary library of touch and colour 
one that has the capacity to change the way in which textiles are seen and assessed by us all. Everybody has a different answer when you ask a collector, but I agree with what my late friend Alistair McAlpine used to say. Most children collect at an early age. Well, they used to collect. Now they have far more exciting things like a tablet in front of them. You know, who wants to collect little pebbles when you have got the whole world on your lap? But people used to collect, a lot of children, but most grow out of it. It's something I didn't grow out of it. I mean, I remember in Delhi saving my pocket money when I was uh, nine or ten, going to Red Fork markets to buy little bronzes and I mean, some Ganeshes I bought. They were only like a few pounds and some of the dealers were very kind. They would laugh at me that a child wants to buy these old bronzes. I still have some of the bronzes in the cabinet behind here. I've just felt the need to buy stuff and it has uh, never left me. It took a little longer for him to discover that textiles were the things he really loved. I finished university in early 80s and I met my partner and uh, Roy was collecting some oriental rugs at the time and also he had a couple of abstract heavy textiles. I was fascinated by them and he was a pure mat mathematician um, so, and he was really into music so he was really into abstract design and uh, so that was my first introduction to seeing textiles which I thought were wonderful and at the same time I started to earn so I was traveling to Delhi to see my sister who still lives there and I started looking for embroideries and in those days uh, around the Imperial Hotel there used to be all these women sitting in rows selling embroideries and I had very little budget and I used to see dozens of Banzara embroideries that I was really attracted to basically because they were just I thought abstract masterpieces in small sizes beautifully embroidered so I set myself a target of uh, finding few each trip but I only had a budget of maximum budget of five pounds per piece so I had to limit myself to what I could buy and also it meant I had to be really selective, started looking at things and seeing what I wanted to focus on. So I think that started to train my eye in a way and then I also felt it wasn't just enough just to see what was on the market and living in London, I mean I had the Victoria and Albert Museum not far away, so it was very important for me to visit those institutes and see what was being held there, what the aesthetics were of objects, earlier objects, which didn't actually relate to my Banzara. I was looking at all sorts of European sculpture, medieval art, but to me that was training my eye. It was similar language, so which I was able to transfer to textiles. And then I started traveling to Pakistan, northwest Afghanistan, to quite remote areas and I really got into costumes so I made uh, a huge collection of costumes from those regions. Unfortunately a lot of those areas we can't travel to and all the material has dispersed uh, which is really tragic because we're not really able to pinpoint some of the costumes to exact region they came from. But Karun did manage to rescue many textiles from this deeply troubled area. 
which will be closed to us now for some time. And that is one of his hallmarks. Karun understood long before others stumbled on this truth that textiles tell an important part of the human story rather than just being beautiful things to display. If I collect anything, I have to love the things I collect. That has to be the primary goal. I can't buy things I don't like. Um, and once I start looking into an area, it's very important to, important to me to do proper research in the field. And now I may even consult curators in various museums about those things. Um, so that is crucial that I have to really like things and I have to think about do I want to live with those things because it is almost impossible to manage the sort of collections I have. I have very few, little help. So my life is basically looking after objects. It's a constant. It just doesn't stop. So people looking from outside say, oh, how wonderful it is. Look at your lifestyle. Look at the things you have which I am very lucky to have those things, but my daily life is spending 12 to 14 hours or 18 hours a day looking at things, sorting them out, selecting them for exhibitions. Uh, for example, this show, which is opening in January in Washington Textile Museum, that has been a huge amount of work for the last three years, I mean, several trips to Washington. Uh, and in the end, this show about 80% of pieces which are going to be exhibited are from my collection, so it's a huge show for me. Part of what is important and unusual about Karun's textiles is that they tell a different story from the pieces in most museums. His pieces aren't pristine. They tell tales of human wear and tear, of meaning and belief, of extracting beauty from poverty. He says that museums have huge gaps in their textile collections, and that's because of the people who set up the collections in the 18th and 19th century as museums were established. So they were mainly made by men, so who went out in the 19th century to buy things, and they bought what was available. So you don't have much domestic embroidery. So we're talking about lives of women, in which are invisible in these museums. So we're talking about 18th, 19th century, I mean, Kantas are mainly 19th century, of daily lives of women. And to me, those objects are so important. Not only are they visualizing women, they're also telling their tales. For example, one Kanta I selected uh, recently has embroidery on it with women who look like they're acrobats. But in reality, it was a very tragic case in 1873, of a young girl, Ilokshi, who was 16 year old, who was decapitated by her husband because it was rumored she was having an affair with the priest, and she was 16 year old. So the Kanta actually depicts that murder. So you've got the husband holding the dagger. But if you look at Kanta, a woman who's decided in 19th century to make an embroidery of it, so each stitch around the throat that she's made in red thread, showing the blood gushing out. It's, it's almost painful to look at that piece, but she wanted to record it in her way. It, it, so it's, 
It's not like we looked at a print or we looked at the news story on it. She spent months embroidering it. So many things were considered while embroidering that tragic tale of Ilokshi. And obviously the husband just got three years in prison and the priest was released because under British rule and they um, that that happened. So it's very important to see what the gaps are in the museum. And most museums still have those gaps. You look at borrow textiles, which are very much in vogue, but for wrong reasons, because, you know, borrow textiles are about daily hardship of people suffering in North Japan. And whatever people like to say, it wasn't about aesthetics. They didn't sit there saying, oh, that blue looks nice, I'll patch it there. It was what was available. They had hemp in it, whatever they could get. If you imagine the bitterly cold weather in that region, they just layered it. And some of the pieces had backings which have been taken off. So the pieces which are really loved with lots of patches, people wouldn't even have seen those when they were using it. So that's another area where there are huge gaps in museums that they don't have any material of ordinary working class, poor people. So it's really important to me to highlight that, to show again what it was like for people who didn't have money, who don't write history, to make the needle work. So that's the records they've left because they haven't had the power to write the history for us, but they did have power to make those clothes. Karun's work is driving a reassessment of the cultural value and place of textiles overall. But he doesn't think they will ever be seen in quite the same way as painting. I think it's interesting because in terms of textiles, you look at contemporary artists, as I've mentioned, and then you look at uh, wonderful work of Tracy Amin, Louis Bourgeois. So you have got some women in the Western sphere whose work is regarded as important, but you also have majority of women who are not in the Western world. Their work, I don't think it ever will be have it will ever have same power. It used to be the case, every any time somebody looked at textile, the first question, and I think there's been some research, or first question people ask, oh, how long did it take? And that is a question with textiles, which is odd. They don't confront a painting and say, how long did it take? Or placing themselves in an installation and saying, how long did that take? So somehow people equate the length of time it makes to do something in textile to how good it is. And part of it is, I mean, I understand it's sort of nervousness of the viewer because it, I equate that with the people who are unsure walking to shows, museums, the first thing they hit is the caption. I mean, I, I'm really anti-caption. I would get rid of all the captions. So because I want people to confront the piece and see what it does to them rather than read about it. Because nowadays it's very easy to get that information digitally because it never used to be so. So I think it's really important that we present those pieces partly as art as well. Karun stitches, crochets and knits. And he knows very well the desire of the maker to understand not just what they are seeing, but also to confront how things are made and what they mean. I want to see how it's made. I want to see the unfinished pieces. I want to see the drawing. 
so those objects if they're presented in a not just western cost context any uh, context as an object of beauty then we'll appreciate that okay it may not have that use anymore but it's still part of that culture that culture's history cultures evolve which is a good thing you know otherwise where would we would be in terms of women's rights and lgbtqi rights so cultures evolve and we have to preserve those things so so it, we are showing it in a different context but it is part of your history and part of global dialogue which then informs where people are coming from what sort of arts they lived with and you know i feel so passionately about that he also understands that the making and embellishing of textiles have been a creative refuge and a means of expression for many women who have led shuttered and constrained lives. A lot of women talk about the sort of escapist meditative qualities of needle in a cloth making that stitch. And I mean, as I grew up uh, stitching and crocheting and knitting from the age of 10, my mum taught me all those things. I still do a lot of stitching. It's, it's, it's sort of quite grounding to me and you're really focusing on that small area of stitching. It is in a way meditative, but I think we have to be careful when we say those things, because a lot of 19th century writing and early writing talk about these happy natives who are singing, dancing, and then, you know, in their spare time, they're doing this wonderful embroidery. You know, you have to look at where women were in 19th century, especially in rural settings in Africa and Asia. So they had very little time to embroider and also the light factor, but they were still able to do that work. Karun maintains and houses his entire collection himself. He doesn't have reams of curators and regiments of restorers. This is just Karun working largely on his own. He's just spent three years of his life fitting together an extraordinary textile jigsaw puzzle. Day in, day out sorting small pieces of the Ashburnham textile. This is a glorious embroidered piece produced with a straight needle at the height of the early trade in textiles from the Indian province of Gujarat. It was made in the late 1600s and shows European, Chinese and Ottoman influences. It was installed in Ashburnham House in southern England as wool hangings, curtains and chair coverings. In 1953, everything was sold at auction. The Victoria and Albert Museum got a large chunk of this miraculous fabric. Another piece went to the Metropolitan Museum in New York and the rest was a rag bag of fragments. A few years ago, Karun managed to buy these pieces. He was determined to reassemble them so that he could create an entire pattern repeat. So I spent uh, well over three years working on fragments. So basically some of them were just bags of embroideries that they'd cut out all the surrounding fabrics. I think that was done in 19th century because whoever had those, they would have taken the embroidery and put them on dresses or bonnets. So it was dozens of pieces, which uh, each one had to be catalogued, photographed, and then Harley Magazine very kindly printed every piece out for me. So we made a jigsaw out of them. 
So I had to spend months going through the jigsaws um, because obviously there was a repeat pattern in it. And my aim was to try to come up with the original yardage of the fabric as it would have been made to get one repeat. So I was quite lucky that one piece, which is about 2.6 meter long now, shows the exact repeat as the panel would have been done. So the large repeat panel is going to be exhibited at uh, Washington Textile Museum. So after sorting it out, there was obviously the really long process of uh, stitching it onto a new fabric. So that took forever with a very skilled conservation. This wasn't easy to do and a tremendous headache, both metaphorically and literally. But Karun is clear, it had to be done. Oh, because it was dying out to be put together. <laughs> I just had to do it. I mean, when you <laughs> confront that embroidery, it's just people absolutely fall in love with it. It's the most beautiful embroidery to look at and behold. It, it, it was a joy to work on it. I mean, although it didn't feel like that some, some nights when you're two o'clock, you're uh, struggling with it. Karun also has some sound advice from anyone who is thinking of collecting textiles themselves. And it doesn't have anything to do with the size of your bank balance. Rich or poor, you too can collect textiles if that's what moves you. But I think the first thing would be you have to strain your eye and see what you like. So don't just go to one or two dealers and say, yes, I'm going to buy that because they've written the term rare in front of something. So you have to do your research. It has to be something you really want to live with. If you think you're going to collect textiles because they might go up a lot, then I suggest you don't buy them. Um, because when I started, people used to laugh that I'm buying all these dresses and textiles because no one was seriously buying them in the quantity that I was buying them in the 80s. And I was buying them because I loved them. I didn't think they would go up. Museums would want them or there would be shows of them. So you have to be really careful that you want to buy them because you love them. And the second thing is that, you I mean, I keep saying going back to that and training your eyes. That is so crucial because even working with a lot of curators that I come in contact with daily, um, for example, let's say Eve Weaving, which is the most beautiful weaving from Ghana. Most of them would have only seen two or three pieces. And then I don't think they can make informed decisions when they're exhibiting one in a show. I mean, I travel and I go to see, I've seen tens of thousands of them. So you really need to see a lot of pieces to see what is it that you love about that textile, then focus on those. And the other thing is, as we know, a lot of early textiles are because a lot of them are in vogue, they go in and out of fashion, so the prices go up and down. But they tend to be quite expensive early textiles. But this, I don't think there's ever a time when you can't find something new to collect, particularly with textiles. So a number of years ago, I started buying uh, uh, English smocks, working men's clothes. Uh, because they were not very expensive at all. And somebody pointed something out to me recently on eBay. There were there was a lot of things for sale. And there were like samplers done pockets and little dresses, uh, buttonholes, sleeves done by young women in Victorian times. So they're early pieces because then 60% of the time young girls spend doing needlework in schools. So it's a lot of that material. So for about £20 people can buy this 
beautiful part of history and they're so wonderfully done and the whole story of young girls learning to sew in schools so there's always something to buy as far as I'm concerned. Karun passionately believes in trying to attach the right information to the right textiles and he has a healthy disregard for some of the so-called facts attached to some items. So there is a lot of misinformation about textiles and I think people feel just because you repeat it doesn't make it fact. So you've got a number of uh, shows happening, even in museums. So you've got people with this agenda, particularly some dealers, who are selling a material to a museum. They're saying a story which is made up. They're giving dates which are made up. And then these museums are putting on shows because somebody's donated these things to them. Or you've got some makers as well who have their own agenda because they want to sell their work. So they're making up histories, making up stories. So it's really important for me that we challenge that so we don't just replace one set of misinformation with another set. So if we are decolonizing information, really inspecting things, we also need to have a critical eye about what we are saying, where the information is coming from. So we should be able to challenge makers and dealers. Karun knows his stewardship of these pieces will come to an end when he has run his life's course. His aim is to give them all away, and in this, his generosity is matched only by the immense sense of responsibility he feels for his collection. Yes, I do totally. I feel totally responsible for them because, you know, some of the pieces I've got they were made in 6th or 8th century. Some Indian textiles were exported to Indonesia in 1300s. You know, you've got an 8 meter yardage of a textile which was made in 1300s, and none of them survive in India. So, you, you getting it from Indonesia, it's arrived in London, I've bought it. So, my lifespan is a very tiny blip in the history of those. It's just it just comes and goes. But what I want to leave is, uh, you don't, I, I don't like the term legacies, but I want people to see that I looked after them and not only just looked after them, because there are a lot of very wealthy people who buy priceless things. You know, they can afford anything. I can't. What I want to do, that's why I spent all my time researching, publishing, doing books, writing essays, doing exhibitions, spending hours, you know, in between getting migraines, which are constant. So that people know about it, learn about it, that's what I want to ensure, not that I collected it. Thanks to Karun Taka for being so generous with his time and for his passion for textiles. It's something we will all benefit from. Thanks too to Bill Taylor of Lartrise Partners who edited and produced this episode. And to all those listeners who helped make this third series possible by supporting it via the Buy Me A Coffee button on our website. You can find pictures of some of the textiles we've been talking about in this episode 
at www.hapticandhugh.com forward slash listen, where you will also find a full script and details of some of the exhibitions that Karun is contributing to. Next time, we'll be looking at a pattern that has become truly global, one that unites East and West. It has a history that tracks back several hundred years. Find out more next time. Meanwhile, thank you for your company and thanks for listening.